Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, choir, musicians, as you make your way down. Well, you ready to study God's Word together? Let's get our Bibles out and open to 2 Kings chapter 5. So right there in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 5, Joshua judges Ruth, and you get into your first and second. Samuel Chronicle Kings, 2 Kings chapter 5, page 426 in the Pew Bible in front of you. 426. So we're going to talk this morning about the Father's heart. I think so oftentimes uh, when we use the term heart, when we talk about somebody's heart, uh, we can mean a, a multitude of different things. When the Scripture talks about the heart, it talks about the essence of uh, who we are, the, es- the core of our personhood. And uh, what we don't want to do is we don't want to miss the heart of our Father, the one whom we serve. And if we're not careful, uh, sometimes we will do that. Our uh, personal experiences, our, our cultural biases, uh, all sorts of things will mislead us, uh, especially the flesh within us will try to mislead and deceive us into believing that God is in some ways different than He truly is, and then it can become quite a problem for us. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll uh, begin this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and Lord, I pray that You will open it up to us this morning, and Father God, that we'll have ears to hear, that our hearts will receive Your perfect, infallible Word. What a gift it is to us, Lord. Please instruct us this morning. Use my voice as Your vessel and speak into the hearts of your people. May your spirit move freely among us and do what only he can do. And we'll give you all the credit and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Bible that you have in your hand or the iPad or the Bible app or whatever it is that you're using, that, that book, that uh, amazing piece of literature in your hand that consists of 66 different books, over 40 authors, spans over 2,000 years uh, of time. Across all the pages of Scripture, there is a singular story that's being told. There is a, a God who is executing this amazing plan of redemption towards His people. And that plan is slowly and methodically being played out across the Old Testament and then through the birth of Christ and into the New Testament. And as you uh, sit in church and listen to sermons and go to small group and do Bible studies and read the Scripture on your own, uh, if you lose sight of the grand narrative of the Scripture, then sometimes we find ourselves in situations where Uh, it's very easy for us to be uh, diverted or distracted or misled. Let me give you an example. In Isaiah 43, one of the most spectacular passages in all the Scripture, the Lord says, But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, and who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, and I have called you by your name. You are mine. I want you to just look at that scripture for a moment and think about who is speaking here. The God of the universe, the sovereign Lord who has power and authority over all things, who created everything, who holds it all in the palm of his hand, who is not subject to any other authority or power on earth. 
He can do anything he wants to do, anytime he wants to do it, and he can use anyone to accomplish it that he desires to use. And yet, this God says, you are mine, that I'm going to establish a people, and through that people, I'm going to begin this process of redeeming mankind. Now, this same God, in the very next verse, says this. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Now, I notice, normally when I read that passage, that's the response I get. People say, Amen. And they like that. And I like this verse. But here's my question. Why are we going through deep waters and fires? If this God, who has all authority and power, who is not subject to anyone, if we're His, if He says, you're my people... I mean, if you read the rest of Isaiah 43, he talks about how much he loves us and how precious we are and, and how he has proven that through his redemption. All of these things. So here's my question. Why are we in a fire? Why are, why are we going through waters that are overflowing? Have you ever asked that question? Wait a minute, God. If we're yours and you can control and do anything, then how is it the very next thing out of your mouth is, oh, by the way, before you get carried away and come to your own conclusions, here's how this process is going to work. In the New Testament, Jesus says in John chapter 16, he says, this I say to you that you may have peace. So he's going to tell us this so that we might experience peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. Have you ever stopped and just looked and thought of the paradox that's right there? What do you mean, God? How can you have overcome the world, and yet we're your people, but we're going to experience tribulation? I mean, if you've overcome the world, then shouldn't that smooth things out for us? Isn't that going to make all of the, the, the troubles go away? Acts chapter 14 says, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Now this isn't the cheerful, wonderful way in which we like to start a sermon. But it's very important that we see the heart of the Father for who He is and not who we want Him to be. And I think that what happens is that we make this critical mistake as believers so oftentimes in the way that we uh, deal with the situations in our own lives, in the way that we address situations in others' lives that, that we're able to minister to, and even the way we present God to a lost and dying world. You see, processes must never be mistaken for purposes. There is a drastic difference between a process and a purpose. A process is the mechanism that gets us to the purpose. The process is, is something that we uh, 
that we experience or that, that, we, that comes into our lives. But so oftentimes, almost always, the process is invisible to us. We don't really see the process. We're, we're in the process, but we don't understand what's going on around us. And therefore, it clouds us from knowing the heart of the Father whom we serve, that there's a purpose in the process. The Bible says it this way in Romans chapter 11. The Apostle Paul says, Oh, the depths and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments and your ways past finding out. You see, what, what Paul is saying to us is, is that the way God works in this grand plan of redemption, the way he orchestrates things in our lives, it's, it's really past us finding out. And that's by design. That's how God is. But that's not how we, that's not how we want it to be, and that's certainly not how we oftentimes act like it is. You see... I want, to, I want you to think a little bit about the process. In our lives, isn't it true that trouble is always tempered by time? Whatever trouble we find ourselves in, whatever tribulation we're facing, it's always tempered in time. In other words, looking back, we have this perfect 2020 vision in the rearview mirror. We look back and we see what God has accomplished in our life. But in the midst of the trouble, we forget that it's, it's tempered by time. That God specifically tells us certain things about trouble. For example, the psalmist says, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Did you notice that what God said in Isaiah 43 he didn't say that we are in deep waters, that we're in an overflowing river, or that we're in a fire. He didn't say that. He said we're passing through those things. He's saying, listen closely, my children, that this trouble that you're going to face is a process that's leading to a purpose, and the process is tempered by time. That whenever God talks about the trials and tribulations that we might face, He talks about them as we're passing through them, not as we're in them indefinitely, which creates another problem. Because even as our heart understands that we're passing through something and not in it, then we get a little bit tangled up on, okay, well, if I'm just passing through it, then let's hurry up and get it over with. But again, God reminds us, no, that that we're passing through it and our trouble's tempered by time, but the process cannot be rushed or hurried. That God has his own timing and his own timing is not our timing and his timing is always going to be the right timing, the perfect timing, and that nothing's going to happen no matter how hard we try to leverage things in our own strength to change his timing. And so God says something like in Galatians 6 verse 9, do not let us grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. You see that when we're in the midst of the process, God's saying, don't, don't get weary. Don't get weary that in due season I'm going to bring about my purpose. 
You know, when you know your destination, you're not as troubled by your tribulation. When you know your destination, you're not as troubled by your tribulation. You see, when you know where you're going, the problem is, is that sometimes, oftentimes, many times, I'm afraid, we lose sight of the Father's heart. We, we get mixed up between the process and the, and the purpose. We, we get tangled up in the, in the time of the process. And, we, and, and we let our hearts get anxious and troubled within us. And then we start finding out that the more we try to uh, resist, the more we try to fight against what God's doing, the more miserable we become because we simply, we simply cannot... We cannot thwart the, the, the heart and mind of God. And so I want to use a narrative from uh, the Old Testament, from 2 Kings chapter 5. And I, I want you to see in this narrative that it is, I think, one of the most spectacular places to really see the heart of the Father. And so many times, uh, I think it's uh, places like this where it might most often be overlooked, but I think it's the most obvious and instructive and evident. 2 Kings chapter 5. Let's begin reading in verse 1. The scripture says, Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Now, let's just think for a moment on the context here so we can sort of get the idea of what's going on. I mean, Syria is, is a, a nation close to Israel. They've had some rocky uh, relations in the past, but at this point in time, it's, it's been a time of peace. And the Syrians, uh, they were a, a pretty rowdy bunch. They, they thought things like, you know... Growing your own crops, oh, you know, that's just too much work. They, they really weren't into that. Or, you know, uh, taking care of your, yourself and your own needs, they weren't really into that. And so what they would do is they would wait until harvest time, and then they would invade some little uh, village of the Israelites, and they would take all their crops and take it home, and that way they wouldn't have to grow anything or do anything. And so it really worked out kind of good for them, but it wasn't working out very good for the people of Israel. But the kings, the two kings were at peace. The nations weren't at war, but there was still a lot of uh, sort of uh, pirate activity, if you will, that was going on with the Syrians. Well, on one particular day, the Syrians uh, invaded a village, and they not only took crops and plundered the goods of the people, but they also took a little girl, and they took her home. And they made her a servant. And so this man, Naaman, who is really the second in command over the entire nation, only the king is over him. He rules over the whole army. This girl becomes the servant in his household. And then the Bible tells us she waits on his wife. Now, Naaman, we know historically he made quite a name for himself. He was an amazing warrior. He was a, a great uh, leader, and he had a lot of power and a lot of authority, and of course, people looked up to him, and I'm sure that whatever he wanted, he got. But the Bible tells us that in the midst of all that, 
He was a leper. The most dreaded disease of the Bible, no cure for leprosy. And we've talked talk many times in, in depth about leprosy. When I was in India, I uh, went to a leper colony, and uh, it was one of the most uh, drastic things I've ever seen in my life. Uh, it's horrible to see what leprosy does. And it's very contagious. People have to be uh, quarantined. And so when you go amongst lepers, they put coverings on your uh, feet, arms, you know, on all, you know, so you don't touch anything. You have to stay at a safe distance. Uh, it's really a heartbreaking thing to see. And so this man, Naaman, somehow, we don't know how, he contracts the dreaded disease of leprosy. So now he has a problem in his life that he's unable to fix in his own strength and with his own resources. But this little servant girl, this one who's been taken from Israel, she remembered something from her childhood. She was evidently taken where she was old enough to have remembered some things that went on, but yet young enough to really uh, grow to, to love and serve her, her masters. So you get the idea that she's, you know, she's a young girl. And she remembered that there was a prophet there. There was a man of God there who could do things like heal leprosy. She'd evidently seen him do that. And so she says in verse 3 to her mistress, she says, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Now suddenly in the midst of this hopeless situation where there's no possible remedy, there's a ray of light. Verse 4. So Naaman went and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Well, then go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed, and he took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. So Naaman immediately responds to this one and only hope. So it's sort of like you've got some incurable disease, and you find out that there's some obscure clinic on some uh, remote island in the South Pacific, but that they can cure your disease. I mean, if nothing else works and there's no other hope, and you have an opportunity to go to this clinic, well, then I guess you might go. That's Naaman. He figures, well, what else am I going to do? This is the only chance I have. So he goes to the king. He gets a letter, gets permission, gets a whole bunch of money, a whole bunch of clothes, and he heads off. Verse 6, well, then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. Now, the king of Syria, his name is Ben-Hadad, and we don't know a whole lot about him. We know that he was a pretty devious fellow, but he also wasn't a very, uh, he, he wasn't a very uh, learned, at least uh, writer for sure. He doesn't express himself very well because in his letter, he doesn't, really, he doesn't really make clear what's going on. He just says, hey, uh, I'm the king of Syria. I'm sending you my servant Naaman, and I want you to heal him of leprosy. Well, now, that's not exactly the deal. Maybe he should have put some more information in the letter. So the king, verse 7, as it happened, the king of Israel reads the letter, and he immediately tears his clothes, and he said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends me a man to heal him of his leprosy? 
Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. In other words, Jehoram, who's the king of Israel, he's like, I can't heal him of leprosy. What does he expect me to do? And so he, he thinks this must be a ploy for him to start a war against us, which would make sense because Ben-Hadad's father uh, Syria did the same thing to Israel when Jehoram's dad, Ahab, was the king. So this has already happened in the past. So he thinks, here we go again. They're going to pick a fight so that they can invade us and then demolish us. And then we'll have to rebuild again. And so here we go. Now here's my question. Why doesn't the king of Israel say to himself, well, wait a minute. There is this man who lives in Samaria. How is it that this little girl who was taken captive knows about this prophet and the king of the nation doesn't immediately go, well, there is one guy. Don't you think you would have thought of that if there was a guy in your kingdom who could heal people of leprosy? That would have been the first thing that popped into your mind? Well, first of all, the king is totally consumed, I believe, with the fact that his belief is that, you see, what he believes is happening has clouded his ability to even think what's rational to you and me because we're just reading this from the outside. We don't have any, any, any pre-conditioned you know, biases towards this. But notice how the king is blind to what's right before him because he's convinced himself of something that's not true. The other thing is, is that Elisha, who the prophet is that the girl is talking about, is not really Jehoram's best friend. In other words, they don't really have a great relationship because Elisha, the prophet, is always telling Jehoram what he doesn't want to hear. He's always telling him the truth, and so they have a pretty tumultuous relationship already. And so the king's just, you know... But I think the real issue here is, is that he has convinced himself of one thing, and it's blinded him of the truth. So this is the first sort of scenario that we see unfold. Now look at verse 8. So it was when Elisha the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes and so he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? In other words, hello? Don't you know I'm here? Of course you know I'm here. Why have you not thought about this? Please, he says, let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Elisha sort of breaks into what the king has convinced himself to be reality and sort of shaken up his reality and got him to see what was just a few moments ago clearly there, but he was utterly blind to it. So Naaman, verse 9, went with his horses and his chariots. So that tells us he's traveling with a big posse, if you will. As he stood at the door of Elisha's house... Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven, seven times, for your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. Well now, that seems clear enough. Now I want you to see how deception moves in in verse 11. But Naaman becomes furious. And he went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me. And stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. In other words, now we see that Naaman has this sort of preconditioned idea about how things are going to go. 
Not only is the king blind to the reality that he has somebody in his very kingdom who can heal leprosy, but now Naaman has the opportunity to get healed right before him, and he's furious. Why? Because Elisha didn't do what he thought he was going to do. Because he had his own idea about how this was going to go. He's offended that the prophet doesn't come to the door and greet him. And he's offended that he doesn't wave his hand over the spot where the leprosy is the way that he thinks he ought to go. And so he's furious. Now what's more ridiculous? That a king is ripping his clothes when he has a man in his uh, uh, kingdom who can cure leprosy? Or that a man who has leprosy is standing at the door of someone who can heal him And instead of listening to what he says, he gets furious because he didn't do it the way he thought he would do it. Well, the plot thickens. Verse 12. Then he says, Are not the uh, Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Now we see that not only is Naaman convinced that things would go a certain way and they haven't gone that way, but on top of that, what has been said to him in the way in which he's not accustomed to and doesn't like doesn't make any logical sense to him whatsoever. Oh, this is so important. So important. So many of you can be spared from so many heartaches in your life if you will hear what I'm about to tell you. Naaman could not rationally, in his own mind, with human logic, come to a conclusion that dunking in the Jordan River could possibly do him any good. And so he says, that's ridiculous. My homeland has two rivers that are way cleaner than that river. You think I've come all this way to dunk in a river? Do you know how many rivers I've passed to get here? You know, we could just stay right here all day, right at this point, all day. And we could just go around the room and we could just talk about all the times in our life that we found our pla- ourselves in a place we didn't understand. And it was, we were raging against it because we couldn't logically conclude how it could possibly be something that would benefit us, something that God would use for our good. It didn't make any human logic. Now, Elijah lives in Samaria. I mean, we can just, there's certain things that are just embedded in this story that are just right there if you really just spend any time thinking about it. He lives in Samaria. He doesn't live right in the middle of town. He lives out in podunk nowhere. And so when Naaman and all of his crew come rolling into town and give this letter to the king, and the king says, okay, well, you know, and then one thing happens. He finds out, you know, that uh, we're going to go to Elijah's house, so he sends him out there. Now, what do you think happened when Naaman and his chariots and his horsemen come riding down the dirt path to Samaria. What do you think all of Elisha's neighbors did? Do you think they came out and said, Oh, look, it's a parade. 
Oh, look at the beautiful Clydesdales clopping through our little town. Oh, no. They knew the sound of those horses. They knew the sound of those chariots. They knew exactly what that meant. Here's what they said. What is this? Why is he coming here? It's not harvest time. They took off running. They scattered. There wasn't a soul to be found. There's probably like Naaman pulls up and there's like a dog sitting there. Be the only thing, just wagging his tail. Everyone else is gone. And so he goes up to the, I mean, he's probably thinking, does anyone live here? He goes up and knocks on the door. And so this servant comes. Now, how do I know that he's been there before? How do I know that's not Naaman's first trip to Samaria? Because he got that little girl from there. You see, the only way that little girl would have really known what she knew about Elijah is she had to live in the close proximity to Elisha. So what that tells us is that Naaman or Naaman's men have been in this region before stealing and pillaging and killing and taking kids. And I'm sure that as the chariots were driving down the little path to get to Elisha's house, the little girl is in the chariot looking out and she's seeing very familiar places, probably little fields she used to play in, maybe, you know, places she used to visit, but probably not any friends or anyone that she knew because they were all hiding. And so the servant who told him, there's a man there who can heal you of leprosy. Now, it, it made enough sense to him to go to the king of Syria to get a letter and to travel all this distance on the hope that there might be a man there who could heal me. You understand? But then when he gets there, now, now think about how strange this is. He has enough faith in what could possibly be true to go all this distance to get to Samaria. But yet when he gets there, he doesn't have enough faith to overcome his preconceived notions and his dependence on human logic. Now that's not none, that's none of us, is it? No. Mm -mm. No. We don't fit right into that like a glove, do we? No, we don't. Not at all. None of us had an experience in time where we heard this crazy gospel that the God who created everything sent his son to earth to live a perfect life, to die on a cross, to be slaughtered in this gruesome crucifixion raised from the dead to be the payment for our sin. Now, if that doesn't take faith, I don't know what does. So somewhere along the line, it, you heard this story, and as crazy and radical as that seemed, it sunk into your mind enough to where you found yourself at a place where you placed your life in the hands of this story. 
that Jesus really did come to earth, that He really is God, and that He really did die for our sin. And you became a Christian, showing that you have this amazing capacity for faith. And yet, after you became a Christian, somewhere down the road you became jaded over time. You sort of got your your Christianity got cultured in the context of uh, being around people and just sort of the way things have always been. And somewhere through that process, you left the person who had enough faith to believe this amazing story. You became a Christian, but then you reverted back to your cultural presuppositions and your human logic with regards to what's going on around you. I knew it didn't affect you. It's just me. I'm the only one. Just be quiet. That's fine. It's me. Let's just pretend I'm talking to myself. You're just listening in. It just seems so strange. Who would do this? Who would, who would go to such lengths and travel so far on the, 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 the slim chance of the word of a servant girl and then get there? Here's who would do that. You would do that and I would do that. That's exactly who would do that. We do it all the time. And so there's Naaman. He's thinking to himself, Go and wash seven times, dunk seven times in the Jordan River, and my flesh is going to be restored? Come on. There's other rivers that are far better than that. Here's what Naaman's saying. Here I am in this place, and I don't see the connection. Isn't that what you say? That's what I say. I look around. I find myself in a circumstance that I didn't expect, didn't see coming, and I don't see the connection. I don't see how this relates to all of the things that uh, I have purposed in my heart, all of the ways that I would like to understand God to work in my life. I don't see the connection between the two. You see, we find ourselves in a situation like Naaman's in, and we say this. In our hearts, this is what we say. We say, I know my needs. You see, we all know the leprosy we have. You know the broken heart you have because somebody that you loved has been snatched out from under you, and your heart is broken. You see, you know that. You, you, and so you're saying, God, my heart's broken. God, I've been, I've been betrayed. God, my my marriage is killing me. God, I've got cancer. God, my children are wayward. You know what your leprosy is. You are fully aware of what that is. You know the problem. And then we turn right around and we tell God the solution. And here's what you need to do. You need to fix my problem. And I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that there's only one way to fix my problem, and that is make it go away. And God says, have we met before? Do you know me? Have you ever read your your Bible? Have you spent any time with me at all? Where exactly did you come up with this protocol for the way that this is going to go? You see, 
processes lead to purposes. And we celebrate the purposes of God. But we do everything we can to negate the process. We don't want the process. We just want the purpose. You see, we, when we're in a process, we have these certain ways of responding to process. I think there's three just universal ways that our heart responds to the process. We say these three things. The first one is, this isn't what I'm used to. See, something starts happening in our life. We don't like it. We rail against it because we're not used to it. Hey, this isn't the way we roll. This isn't the way you were raised. This isn't the way we behave. This isn't what I planned for. This isn't what I, whatever it is. I'm not used to it. And so therefore, because I'm not used to it, then it must be bad and it needs to be fixed. To which God says, excuse me? Oh, I didn't realize you were, uh, you were on the throne of the universe. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that anything that you're not used to is off limits. What about this one? It's not what I expected. You see, in our heart, we build this case and we say, God, you've been doing these things in my life. Which he has. But what we do is we conclude what these things that God is doing in our life are leading to. We see these little steps that God's leading us on, and so we in our heart already decide where the steps are leading. And if the steps don't lead to where we've decided they're going to lead, then something has went terribly wrong because we know where it's supposed to go, don't we? Because we're God. So see, we're, if we're not used to it, or it's not expected, or how about the big one? It doesn't make sense to me. Here's the killer. It doesn't make sense to me. If I can't wrap my head around how this process is going to lead me to a purpose, then the only thing it can be is bad. It's just bad. And what happens is, the Christ follower, the new covenant believer, the possessor of the Spirit of God within you and within me, puts the emergency brake on in our life. We stop because we just can't seem to make heads or tails of it. See, Naaman turns away in a rage. We rage, we just hide the rage. We don't tell anybody how we're raging, but we rage. When God asks you, something through his word, when he speaks to you through a passage of scripture, through a sermon, through a Bible study, when you encounter something in the word of God that just, it gets on you, 
something that makes you uncomfortable. God, on almost every page of your Bible, he says something that is pertinent, relevant information to all of us as his followers. Hey, when was the last time that you just wrestled in the, in the uncomfortableness of what God is saying to you? And so often it's not what you expect to hear. See, I think we have perfect hearing when it's what we want to hear. That's what my wife tells me anyway. But when it's not what I want to hear, suddenly I... So then I start flipping around. I start looking at other passages. I start trying to, you know, mitigate the circumstances. Right? I start using my scriptural knowledge to build my own case. I'm sort of like this, you know, spiritual attorney. And I start getting all of my, you know, evidences together. Because God has said something that I don't really want to hear, that I don't expect, and it doesn't make any sense to me. But here's the question. We all know it's the truth. I mean, I'm not talking about what might happen. I'm not talking about what could happen. I'm talking to every single one of you about what already has happened. I'm talking to you about the situation that you and I are in right now. Right now. What are you going to do? What are you going to do about that? How are you going to respond? I mean, even if you never read your Bible. If you come to this church, it's going to happen to you. Over and over and over. What are you going to do? And even if you try to run away, what you've already heard is already embedded in your heart and just keeps haunting you and chasing you, doesn't it? Yeah, you can't escape what's there. Will you trust God when you don't understand what He says? Will you trust Him when you don't have all the information that you need? Interestingly enough, you became a Christian without all the information that you need. The reason I know that is because I am undoubtedly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I am the greatest skeptic in this room. I have never once heard any of you tell me your testimony, ever, that went like mine. Whereas a completely lost, unchurched person, after my very first visit to this church, I simply asked my wife, can I borrow that Bible? Evidently, those people believe something. I'm not sure what. And I don't think it's real, but I need to read that book before I come to a conclusion. And I began in Genesis chapter 1, and I started reading all Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. I started reading. Did you do that? I mean, I'm lost as a goose. I'm reading through the Bible. 
Because I want to know what it says. I mean, granted, if I'm honest in my pride, I wanted to prove it wrong, but that's okay. I still read it. And when I got saved, God saved me. I didn't have all the information. And neither did you. But somehow, you place your faith, your eternity in Him without all the information, but in the throes of life, even after everything that that faith, the Bible says, accomplishes in you, we then start to retreat. Now, I, I just need, I need, more, I need to understand. I need more information. I just find it amazing that we're so fickle that in the singular greatest moment in our life, we walk with Jesus. And then down the path, we somehow lose the capacity to trust Him. The process. The process. It's at these moments in our life when we're being obedient. We're coming to church. We're going to Sunday school. Man, we are doing all the Christian things that a Christian person ought to do. Are we really being obedient? Or are we going through the motions... Are we participating in a routine, but in reality what we're doing is we're really refusing to move? If the truth were told, our outward obedience is a cloak to conceal our inward refusal to trust. Because... I don't think it's possible that the God of this Bible, who has said all that he said, who has said about this amazing plan to redeem mankind, I don't think it is possible for a group of people to get together, assemble together as his disciples, and it not be a widespread experience that the vast majority of all of us on any given Sunday already know some things that God is calling us to do. But we're choosing to spin our wheels until we get more information. Until we, until we see a little clearer. Until, until more obvious things happen. Until, I don't know, you fill in the blank. 
In other words, if God's purpose is redeeming mankind, I mean, let's just, come on. We, let's don't overcomplicate this. We're in Theology 101. God has a purpose to redeem the world. He raises up a people, and he says, through this people, I will bless the world. Now, how exactly is he going to do that? He's going to use these people as his hands and feet to reach the world. Now, here's my question. Okay, we've got that. Now, how is he using you to do that specifically today, right now? I mean, you can't say that this is the God that you serve, this is his plan, but yet I'm, I'm on a hiatus. Where's the scripture? Where's the hiatus scripture? Where is it? That, that his plan for you is to go to church, go to Sunday school, have a Bible study, go home, go to work, repeat. It's like shampoo. You just put it in, then you rinse it, repeat. You just over and over and over. That's, is that it? Is that, what you, is that what we're doing here? I mean, I'm just asking. I'm not, I'm not yelling at you. You all look like you're in trouble. Remember, I'm talking to myself. You're just listening in. This is kind of how I write a sermon. Does that make any sense to anybody? Or would it just be the logical conclusion that the vast majority of us... I mean, everybody says, oh, well, you know, God has a purpose for your life. To which I always go, and... Like, well, what happened? How did we just stop right there? It's kind of like, you know, I, I, I go home and Lisa says, hey, I made dinner. And, you know, I mean, I'm sitting at the table just staring at nothing. Like, and, I mean, you know, right? It's sort of more information is going to follow that. Oh, yeah, God's got a purpose for my life. It just kind of ends there. What's the process? Is there, a, is there a relationship in your life that he's, he's told you it needs to change? This relationship, it doesn't honor me. You know it doesn't honor him. And you've made up all these excuses about why, and you just keep spinning your wheels. And more than likely, the main excuse is it's someone else's fault. In other words, I'm behaving in a way that I know is counter to the way God would call me to behave because someone else is doing something. Which again, good luck with that at the judgment seat. Just, you know, I mean, I'm just, I hate to say I told you so, but that's really not going to go well. How is it that we know what we're supposed to do, but we don't do it. How has God called you specifically to serve Him? In other words, do not say God has a purpose for my life. From now on, I want us all to say, God's purpose for my life is. What is it? 
And if you don't have an answer to fill in that blank, then how can that be true? How much mental gymnastics does it take to convince yourself that God doesn't have, that you're just wait, you're waiting for God to show you? I don't believe that. I do not believe that. Now, you may, be do, you may be serving God in this specific way, and He may be going to lead you in another way in the future, but there's no way that you're not serving God in a strategic, specific way, and that's His will. That's impossible. It's impossible. Now, how many Christians are running around? God's got a purpose for my life. I ain't got a clue what it is, but I know it's there. Someday we're going to get to it. I'm not really sure. Or, oh, you know, it's for me to get to heaven. No, if it was for you to get to heaven, you'd already be there. You see, if God has all the information, I mean, this is the million-dollar question. If God has all the information, which he does, if he has all the information, why doesn't he just tell us? I mean, maybe you've tried this in your prayer life. God, I know you know. I know you know how this is going to end. I know that you know how much this breaks my heart to see this person that I love in this situation or act in this way or for this to happen or for this terrible uh, you know, trial that I'm in or whatever it is. And God, I know that you know all that. So if you would just tell me, if you would just explain to me, if you would just show me that here's the day that my prodigal is going to come home or here's the way that my cancer is finally going to come to an end or here's the, the, the reason or the behind the process that I can't see. If you would just show me all that, I would be fine with it. To which you hear silence. Why? And then you can build another case against God in your head. Well, then you see, God, if you were really caring and loving like you say that you are, you would tell me. Again, way wrong. Not true. Now, now let's just... I mean, at this point, you might as well just surrender, right? To the reality that if God tells you about the process. What's going to happen? If God tells you when the prodigal is going to come home. If God tells you how the cancer is going to turn out. If he tells you about the trial you're facing. If he tells you about the suffering that you're in. If he tells you about that process. What are you going to do? The same thing you've always done. You're going to somehow weasel your way into taking credit for what happened. Which is why God never tells us. Because this life is about faith. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. This whole relationship that we're in with Him, it's one based on faith. And if I know all the details, well then that doesn't really take, take any faith, does it? No. No. 
So what I'm saying is what so many people would call walking with God is actually standing still with your arms closed. And the whole time, saying to yourself, well, look at me. I'm such a good Christian. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. Here's what Madison said in her testimony. I almost fell out of my chair when I saw that this morning. She starts by saying, God is all-powerful and He can do anything He wants to do. And right then I went, uh-oh. I think somebody's meddling in my sermon. <laughs> and then she said this. If God wouldn't have taken something away from me, I never would have heard his voice. Out of the mouth of a child, the process that led to the purpose. You see, God loves to come into our routine. Our walking with Him routine. Our external obedience routine. He likes to come right in the middle of that. And He likes to drop a nice big ball of you don't understand right in the middle of it. He likes to... When he sees you and me just rolling around like a hamster in a wheel, he comes along and changes things around. And suddenly there's this event. There's this catastrophe. There's this circumstance. There's this whatever it is. Suddenly a process comes in, and we don't understand it. We didn't expect it. And it doesn't add up according to our way of thinking to remind us that we're not here for a routine. We're here for a relationship. And that if you know the heart of the God who wrote this book, you would understand that from the beginning, He has always told us this is how it's going to work. So, verse 13, Naaman walks away in a rage. Because the process is just goes against everything that he presupposed in his mind and it doesn't add up to his human logic. So he walks away, gets back in his chariot, commands everybody to turn around and drive home. So he can just die of leprosy and peace. And again his servants come. And they say, they come near and they spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? Now, I'm studying this passage of Scripture, planning to 
you know, a couple weeks ago, planning to preach this Sunday out of a different passage of Scripture. Somehow, God leads me to this passage of Scripture. I start putting myself in this scenario, and I start thinking about how this works out in my own life. And I'm imagining myself in the various times in my life when I've been in a situation that I didn't like, and the process was, didn't make any sense to me, and I didn't understand it, and it wasn't what I expected, and I couldn't see how God would use it for my good. In fact, I was a little bit offended, to be honest with you, because I'm a pastor. I feel like I ought to get it a little better. You know what I mean? Come on, God. I mean, I serve you for a living. I've given you everything. And this is what I get in return. And I'm thinking about Naaman. And I'm thinking, how does he even know about the prophet in the first place? Some little servant girl comes along and says something to him. Then when he messes it all up again, gets in his chariot and he's going home, then what happens? Then again, it's like the voice of God through the little nobody. Uh, Master, you you can almost hear it in the syntax how they they realize. I mean, you you don't cross name it. I mean, he just chopped your head off in a second. They come in there, but they come in there. Why? Why Why didn't they just go home? It's not their leprosy. What do they care? I believe prompted by the Spirit of God. That's the grace of God in Naaman's life. The servants come back again, again. Maybe, maybe you should give this a shot. I mean, if he would have told you to do something good, you probably would have done that, right? How many times in your life and my life, while we are internally rebelling against the process and purpose of God in our life, while we're externally going through the motions of our routine, instead of just killing us like God ought to, he sends these little messengers into our lives, doesn't he? Who just say the right thing at the right moment. He just confirms his word in your heart. To just prompt you along the process like it's the Father's heart. Listen, I'm just telling you, if it were me, I'd just kill Naaman. I'd kill him. He deserves it. He's an idiot. He is. If I had leprosy, I sat at my desk and I thought, what could The servant of Elijah have said to me that I wouldn't have done if I had leprosy. I've seen leprosy. And I'm telling you right now, I would do anything. Anything. There's not one thing that my mind can wrap around that I wouldn't do. I would do it. As long as it only involved me. I'd do it. And he just walks away. To which I would say, kill him. Just torch him right now. And God prompts the heart of a servant to risk their own life to go in and to say, Sir, maybe you should give it a try. In other words, Naaman, when you're in the process of God, is this really... Is this really a battle you want to win, Naaman? I mean, you're going to lose. You have basically 
secured the fact that you're going to lose if you walk away. Verse 14, so he turns around and he went back. He went down and he dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. And lo and behold, his flesh is restored like the flesh of a little child. And it was clean. Hmm. So what's the purpose of God? To heal Naaman's leprosy? You think the purpose of God is to fix your problem? You think the purpose of God is to heal your infirmity? You think the purpose of God is to fix your relationship? You think the purpose of God is to accomplish the things that you've determined in your mind that God ought to fix? Do you think that's the purpose of God? Because I'm telling you, that's not the purpose of God. Verse 15 tells us what the purpose of God is. So Naaman returned to the man of God. He goes back to Elisha. He and all of his aides, and he came and he stood before him and he said, What an amazing river that Jordan is. I never knew you had such an amazing river flowing right through your country. He said, Boy, you are some prophet, Mr. Elisha. Great job. Who knew you were here? I mean, you want to, you know, do some uh, public speaking or put some billboards up or something so more people know that you exist because, you know, you're kind of flying under the radar. That's not what he said. He didn't say anything about the river, the prophet, the healing. In fact, there's never another mention of the leprosy. No. He returns completely healed. He could have just went home. But he takes all of his people, all of his aides, he goes all the way back to Elijah's house and he says to Elijah, indeed now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. That is the purpose of God. See, the purpose of God for you is for you to be a vessel, a means of His glory. You understand that? That it's about Him using you for His glory. And let me tell you what never brings God glory. Your routine. Your routine does not bring God glory. It's when you are obedient and you walk in the Spirit. Paul taught us in Galatians, when we studied through Galatians, that when we walk in the Spirit, we cannot sin. It's in the flesh that we get tangled up into all of these ideas that we have. And all these, our need to have all the information and the understanding, our need for it to fit into our context, for it to make sense to us. And how many times, on how many pages, through how many different authors, through how many prophets, through how many gospels, through how many prophecies, does God have to scream from the top of the mountain to say, it's never going to make sense to you. You can never understand me fully. I'm too glorious for you. I am redeeming the world. 
Now, God's not saying this. Tony is. But here's what I think the next sentence is. And we would have already been done with this if y'all got this a few thousand years ago. Story's not about leprosy. Your cancer is not about cancer. Your prodigal is not about a prodigal. Your, your struggling marriage is not about a marriage. Don't you understand that? You're in a process, and it's leading you to a purpose. And when you're in the process, you're not going to see the purpose. You're not going to know the purpose. It's not for you to know. That way, when you get to the purpose, God gets all the glory. See, you can't say, well, here's what happened, see. I just felt led of God to go to M.D. Anderson, and M.D. Anderson healed me. Oh, is that how that went down? Oh, you see, what happened was I started praying every single day, five hours a day for my prodigal child. And on the 17th day, they came home. Oh, is that how that happened? No, that's not how that happened. What happened was God brought them home. God healed your cancer. God moved in your marriage. God did this, God did that. You didn't do that, God did that. You're in the process. And when you get to the purpose, if he doesn't get the glory, then you miss the purpose. So I'm back to my original question. God's purpose for my life is what? How are you specifically serving God's purposes? How is he using you right now today for his glory? Not, I don't know, I'm working on it. No, no, you, you, you don't have anything to do with that. No, uh, uh, I, I, I don't know enough, info, I haven't learned enough yet. No, that, that can't be it because you never know enough, so that's not it. Well, I've got to get another, well, what is it? He said, you're my people. You're my people. I have all authority. All authority over heaven and earth. Now I want you to go make disciples. I want you to teach them and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what I want you to do. I want you to live for my glory in your terrible marriage. I want you to live for my glory with your wayward children. I want you to live for my glory while you're getting radiation and chemo. I want you to live for my glory. Whatever the process is, the question is, what's the heart of the Father? Are you His? Yes. Well, then what does that mean? Then that means you're his, that he's got you in the palm of his hand, that he's got you. And so things you don't understand are happening, okay. Things that you can't figure out are happening, okay. Things that you didn't expect are happening, okay. All these things are happening, but why? What is his purpose in all that? That you might glorify him. That you would realize I'm in the process. And that I don't understand the process, but I know the heart of my father.
I know the heart of my Father. See, when you know the destination, it changes the way you experience tribulation. Because the heart of our Father is you are mine. You're going to walk through the flood waters. You're going to walk through the fiery flame. But you're not going to drown. You're not going to be burned up. Because I'm with you. That's the heart of our Father. Now, what I don't want to happen today is I don't want you to get up and walk away from this moment and think, wow, that was really informative. Oh, it's so true. It really got me to thinking, none of that. I want you to answer the question. God's purpose for my life is what? How is he specifically using you right now for his glory? Will you trust him? Will you trust him? in the process you're in right now. I find it hard to believe that a God who has made his sole purpose for us so clear on this earth, how can there be places in the world without the gospel? How? How can there be places without people called there? How can there be peoples all over the world that don't have the Bible translated into their language? How can that be? How can it be that we're surrounded by people who are lost and destined for an eternal hell every single day. And we're not speaking up. We're not doing something. We're not serving them. We're not being used. How? That is impossible. The only explanation is, is that there's an army, a huge multitude of people that are standing there with their arms crossed, waiting for more information and more understanding. Let's stand and bow our heads.